0: You're listening to The McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues of matter in business and management.
1: Hello, and welcome to The McKinsey Podcast. I'm Diane Brady. We all think we can learn, but it's more of an acquired skill than you think. And there's a reason why most company learning programs don't work. Joining me today are two McKinsey partners who can tell us a lot about the fundamental and underappreciated skill of learning. Not just how we improve that skill as individuals, but also how we nurture it in others and how we create a real learning culture in our companies. Elizabeth Young McNally is a global leader of the McKinsey Academy out of Stamford, Connecticut. And Matthew Smith is McKinsey's chief learning officer based in Paris. Liz and Matt, welcome.
0: Thanks, Diane. Thank you.
1: Let's start uh, by talking a little bit about where you sit in this universe. Tell us what you do. Matt, I'll start with you.
0: Sure. So I, as you mentioned, am the chief learning officer here at McKinsey & Company. And what that means is essentially that I look after the learning and development of all of our 30,000 plus colleagues globally. And that involves really deeply understanding what are the needs of our people in terms of the capabilities they need to be successful, both within McKinsey, but also for their broader career. And then turning that into a set of offerings That they can take and take advantage of leadership development programs, take advantage of internal and external courses, and make sure that we're meeting those needs. And that's my job in a normal year. And in this very abnormal environment that we're in now, uh, we've also been working very hard to ensure that all of our offerings are fit for the moment that we're in, where uh, obviously many people are not able to go to in-person programs or attend live learning sessions. So we've been doing a lot over this past year in particular to pivot much of what we do to digital and distance formats.
1: Which is interesting because I know from remote schooling that it's a challenge to transfer to a digital environment. Before I go on to this, it sounds a little like your crowdsource programs. That's not quite accurate, is it?
0: Well, I wouldn't say we crowdsource, but I think we try to get the best of what's offered externally and combine that with things that we create ourselves for our own people. And I'll give you an example, a skill like how to lead a McKinsey project team or how to solve problems in a very McKinsey specific way, that's not something that we can just source from the outside world. That's something we have to build for ourselves, for our own people. But on the other hand, if we're trying to teach people how to say code in Python, uh, or the fundamentals of machine learning and artificial intelligence, there's actually a lot of great material out there And over the last few years, there's been just an explosion of external content available on sites like Coursera and Udemy and LinkedIn. So we want to tap into that, and we want to make sure that we offer our colleagues a mix of both internally created programs for that very McKinsey-specific content, as well as the best of external content uh, on skills that we don't really need to reinvent the wheel on.
1: Liz, let me go to you. Talk about the McKinsey Academy and what drew you to that. Sure. McKinsey Academy
2: is our entity at the firm for building our clients' capabilities. Um, We help organizations achieve and sustain transformational impact by building the individual and organizational skills in areas that are required to sustain the transformations we do. So, for example, if we're serving a client on a digital transformation, we can embed McKinsey Academy offerings around the skills that those leaders will need to be able to lead and, and sustain that transformation. Um, and, and similar to, to firm learning, it comes from the same core of a, a hybrid approach, blending together virtual programs, digital programs, reinforcements, field works, different elements to enable our clients to acquire, apply, and sustain the skills that they will need.
1: I'm intrigued as looking at your military background, which I always often associate with leadership. Is that something that's informed a little bit about how you approach the job?
2: A hundred percent. I went to um, West Point, I which is uh one of the world's foremost, if not the most foremost, leadership uh, institution, or those of us that went to West Point like to believe. And the leadership lessons I learned in the military had a fundamental um, effect on me and how I serve clients and and think about leadership development. What I would add, though, as well, is the military is not just a leadership organization. It's really fundamentally a learning and capability building one as well. If you look at how much time militaries spend on building skills, right? Fundamentally, that is the bread and butter of what militaries do as well. And so it's prepared me for this role, not just from the leadership angle, but really for an appreciation of how important good capability building is too.
1: I'm a curious person. I ask a lot of questions and ergo, I think of myself as a good learner, uh, but not necessarily so. Matt, what are the fundamental tenets of learning how to learn?
0: So this is a topic I'm really passionate about because I think that what you just said, Diane, learning how to learn is a phrase that we don't hear enough these days. There's a lot of talk about the need for people to have a learning mindset or build new skills, but there's not enough attention on the fact that learning itself is a skill.
1: Well, we think we have it already, right? That's the problem.
0: We all think we have it. So we might say, I'm a fast learner, or I'm a slow learner, or I I learn in this way or that way. But actually, if you look at a lot of the underlying research, uh, there's several strands of research that show that people can actually build their skills to learn new skills. And we think of this as one of the most fundamental capabilities that a person can develop for themselves. Because... It makes you better at getting better at things. It makes you better able to adapt to the changing environment that we all face these days. So I think this idea of learning as a skill, in and of itself, is a fundamental one, and one that we talk to a lot of our clients about, and and frankly, a lot of our colleagues as well, um, because they're also curious and they want to learn, but they need to be taught. Back in school, you might have thought about this as study skills. Or how do I organize myself in order to get my schoolwork done? But there is a much more sophisticated version of that when you think about adult learners that I think we all need to invest more in.
1: So I'm curious, Liz, when you look at companies, what's usually missing?
2: There can be um, a few different things missing. The interest um, matters, of course, but one of the most important hallmarks at the company or the organizational level is a long-term growth orientation that naturally favors learning. I think maybe I can just share some anecdotes that really help to bring that to life in terms Mm -hmm. of what are some of those ingredients. Some elements that I have seen in organizations that are successful at doing this It starts with storytelling and role modeling by the senior leaders that learning and long-term perspective are important. How are they talking about that and demonstrating in their actions that they're doing that? Secondly, are they putting their money where their mouth is, right? Are they investing in the types of learning programs, reskilling programs, even explicit expectations of time spent on learning? How, How are they doing that? how in what we often call moments that matter, but the beginning of a meeting or the end of a meeting, things like that, driving a culture and language of learning so that you're constantly saying, what are we missing? Or how can we consider how to do this differently? How are we creating psychological safety so that people feel comfortable sharing ideas? And then finally, what are the formal processes that you use as well? You know, in the Army, they had something called the Center for Army Lessons Learned. You know, it was a formal organization that was meant to
1: capture learnings and then make sure the organization adapted. Like an off-site where you'd all gather together and do a weekend program? Is that what it is? Well, that, but they would also
2: even deploy into the battlefield to capture the lessons real time. So it was both off, but it was more of what is the formal mechanism to ensure that the learning and the continuous improvement actually happens and that there is that learning loop. And those are just some of the examples of elements that I have seen organizations use uh, to help at the company level think about learning. We talk a lot about individuals, but the other one is really the team. Is the team environment set up to enable learning too?
1: I think that's a great point and we will definitely get into it. I want to get a little more of a sense of the two of you as individuals um, because you are both People who thought about learning, I'm sure, adapted a lot of these lessons to your own life. And Liz, what are some of the key lessons that you've learned, either from your work at McKinsey, the military, et cetera, as to what you have found to be effective techniques that really helped you become a better learner?
2: Maybe one I guess, relatively profound one to start, which is really, I mean, one of the fundamental lessons I learned at West Point was you have to really learn to follow in order to learn to lead. And there was a quite deliberate approach in terms of how that's done. And over the weekend, I happened to be listening to a talk given by the president of Stanford University. And it was interesting. He was talking to a number of individuals who had just won a scholarship and, of course, they're eager to go and change the world. And he made this comment around how do you have that excitement and urgency, but also some patience that you have to learn how things are done in order to then go and change them? And how do you combine the urgency of now with the patience to sort of learn to follow before you can lead, if you will?
1: So before going to Matt, learning to follow is more about listening than talking. What is learning to follow? Listening before talking
2: and learning how to be a contributor so that you can then lead. The way you can learn how to follow is a few things. Number one, it's to really appreciate and value time spent as an individual contributor and how even you can be a leader in that moment, but that there is a role to learn the ropes um, first and to be intentional as you're doing that and constantly be noticing other elements of leadership around you and how you're going to help use those to help you become a better leader as well. But this real sense that that you need to understand and appreciate th- those those other roles um, as you take on a, a greater leadership role yourself.
1: So you're a very intentional learner, Matt. And I know that because I have taken one of your courses at McKinsey, which my moral flaw I did not finish, and I'm now catching up because it is so fascinating Talk about the lessons you've learned to make you a better learner. You certainly seem to be a voracious reader of management thinking and leadership books.
0: Well, first, I have to ask you, Diane, what did you learn from the course, (laughs) even if you didn't finish it? Because now you've piqued my curiosity.
1: Actually, I think the level of curiosity and the sort of voracious way in which you take outside information and you adapt it to your own life is one thing that's very powerful, I think also the power of getting people within the program to mentor each other um, is not something I've seen. I'm so used to modules being, here's a video and click through, click through. And so to make it a collective exercise, I found very useful because I was able to interact with other people even remotely. And I also think just that reminders around playing to your strengths and the prioritization and some of the techniques and tips you used were great. To be honest, I let my work agenda get in the way of making this a priority. So thank you for taping these things going back, but that was a lesson learned for me. So I have taken a lot out of it and I think that I'm a better at prioritizing and, and making sure that I get the things done that need to be done before I get involved in busy work, which is certainly something we all do.
0: Well, first of all, Diane, it's wonderful to hear the feedback. And (laughs) second (laughs) is- On a
1: podcast, no less.
0: (laughs) Indeed. And what we just did there is actually one of the things that I would recommend doing. We actually did a couple of them just in that little moment. Number one, I asked you to reflect on what you actually learned. And what you did when you did that was you reinforced the learning for yourself because you made sense, you put pieces together, you said it out loud to another human being. And that actually reinforces a lot of how learning happens for each of us. When we talk out loud to others, we deepen the channels in our brain that say, okay, this is something that is important to me that I'm going to remember. So that's one little piece of it. You also said something else that's important, which went into the design of that course that you took, which is we got people to support each other. Because one of the things that I think many companies miss when they design or roll out digital learning or modules that people can take is that a lot of learning happens through social interactions and conversations. And if you can enlist other people around you, it could be peers, it could be your manager, it could just be friends that you have in your office. But if you enlist them in your learning and hold each other accountable for what you're trying to work on, that actually goes a long way to ensuring the success of the learning. And part of that is we're all just better when we have an accountability buddy. But part of it is when you're transparent about what you're trying to learn or trying to work on, other people start noticing it more and can give you more helpful feedback. So if I say to you, Diane, I am trying to get better at doing podcast interviews, then after we're done here, you're much more likely to call me up and say, hey, Matt, here's some things you did well and here's some things you could work on next time versus if I didn't make that learning goal clear to you. So it's setting these goals, enlisting others in the process, talking about what you're learning and getting feedback. Those are some of the core building blocks that people can put in place to improve their learning.
1: What does it mean to have a learning culture. Another term I've heard tossed about is the adaptable organization. What does that look like? Matt, maybe you can talk about the concept of the adaptable organization first.
0: We've been talking about thus far learning at the individual level, a little bit at kind of the team level or enlisting others in it. I think that there's a huge, huge role That organizations play in setting the context and the culture for learning. And there's a few elements of this. And Liz, I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts as well, because you work with so many organizations in this space. But I think, like so many things, it starts at the top and it starts with having a CEO or senior leader who actually values learning. And talks about it very actively. So that to me is honestly table stakes, because if people don't see it as something that's valued in the organization, they're much less likely to do it. But I also don't think that's enough. I think that there's number one, is there a culture or an expectation that people are actually going to take time out to learn? because you do a lot of learning in the flow of your work, but you actually do sometimes need to step out of the flow and invest in taking a course or uh, studying something on your own. You
1: measure it by time? Do you measure it by the amount of time people take? Well, that
0: is one way to measure it. And I think some organizations do actually set goals or expectations around the number of hours that people are going to spend learning. But I'm not sure that is actually the best measure, because we all know you can chalk up hours doing something where you're not really engaged. Mm -hmm. I actually think a better way to build that into the expectations is by linking it to the way that you do your performance management or review systems. So for example at McKinsey what we've been working towards over the last couple of years is rather than you know learning suggesting and putting out a bunch of offerings and you hope they're the right ones for people what we're now doing is as part of our review processes we ask people to think about what their learning and development plan should be over the coming months. So when you go through your review Uh, Whoever is doing your evaluation will get feedback. Uh, They will synthesize that for a number of themes. They will give you recommendations for what learning you should take advantage of in the coming months. And then you will take that and develop a learning and development plan for yourself and have an ongoing conversation with your manager or other people around you about how you're doing against that plan. And I think that versus just pure counting hours is a much more deep and effective way of embedding it into the culture.
1: Liz, earlier in my career, I heard a lot about academy companies, you know, these companies that are, and McKinsey, frankly, was one. They're so great at teaching people. They're almost like the farm teams for many other companies, in addition to being excellent themselves. And it's a very different mindset right now around the business case for this. Do these organizations out actually outperform their peers? It's a great question. And I think that there's
2: sort of two types of organizations that that think about this. One who use learning and adaptability to outperform their peers. There's another category of organizations that I'll come back to who, quite frankly, have to do it in order to survive. And especially right now, we're seeing this, this more than ever. On the first category, organizations using Adaptability and learning to outperform their peers. I mean, I think there's certainly some recent stories and examples that really bring this home. A very famous one is Microsoft and Satya Nadella, who Mm -hmm. openly cites. The move towards a learning culture at Microsoft as one of the critical elements towards driving the growth that the company has experienced under his leadership. And one of the elements of that learning culture that he talks a lot about, that we talk a lot about in McKinsey Academy as well, is how do you cultivate a growth mindset and this is really a mindset and we believe by the way it really can be cultivated right you know some people start with more of it than others for sure but we are all malleable and can get better and this is this idea of how do you see challenges as opportunities to get better and they're not an inherent test of the value of you, but they're an opportunity to learn. And I think that is a a really critical element that is critical for all organizations that want to use learning and adaptability as a way to outperform.
1: I'm curious about Satya and Adela, in part because there's a real authenticity there around the desire to learn, the desire to create that learning culture. And when you're talking to clients, Are there particular things you notice that really signal to you that willingness to really do the hard work to get this done?
2: I think certainly one of the critical elements is the conviction from a business unit leader, whether it's the CEO or the leader of the business unit that is undergoing the transformation of how important capability building is to achieving the broader impact that the organization aspires. And that is an element that we really look for. The CHRO, the head of learning and development, absolutely has to be there as well. The chief human resources officer, right? Right, the chief human resources officer, the head of learning and development, they absolutely have to be there as well. They're often there earlier, right? Because I think that just almost by nature of being in in their roles, they get it. Um, But building that conviction, in the business leaders as well, is an absolutely critical element. Some people come in with it, quite frankly, I think, just because they've experienced it elsewhere or that's how they have grown up. Others have to learn the importance of it. And we find you can inspire people through the stories of others, as well as by really just helping them understand that a critical unlock for the organization's success is providing those individuals in the company with the new skills that they need to succeed um, and creating that, that common language and common way of working.
1: Let me ask about tactics. So what are the tactics, you know, that companies use, especially those that do need to reinvent themselves? I think one place that I think can be helpful to start, because honestly, it can be
2: overwhelming, right, when you think about all the different skills. But to start by asking yourself, what are the most critical skills towards driving the business value? And some of them are technical skills for sure, but we also find that there are more and more so, you know, quote unquote, softer skills, but skills that are required as well to be an adaptable leader in the 21st century.
1: Matt makes me think of an article you wrote um, around the critical mindsets and core skills. I know that was both for individuals and for leaders, which obviously cascades up to the company level. Tell us a little more about those
0: skills. Absolutely. Before I do Diane, I also want to piggyback on this topic mm-hmm. that that Liz mentioned about, you know, needing to understand the skills that are going to drive a business forward in the future. Some of our own research on this, I think is both very eye-opening but should also be a bit of a wake-up call to learning and development and HR leaders across a lot of companies. When we survey leaders, we find uh, and this, by the way, was work that was done actually pre-COVID. So if anything, these numbers are probably even scarier. We find that 90% of companies believe they're going to have some sort of meaningful skill gap over the coming years. So they don't have the skills today that they think they're going to need in the future. But only 16% believe that they're fully prepared to meet those skills gaps. So they might know what they need, or they know that they have a gap. But they're feeling completely unprepared in terms of how are we actually going to close that gap. And the number that's the most frightening for me, and I think others in the learning and development space, is that 60% of them say that their learning and development spend has no explicit connection to their strategic objectives, which Mm -hmm. you may just think is bizarre, but it's an unfortunate side effect of the fact that sometimes. This is treated a bit like a, if you will, an HR topic or a silo off to the side. And I think what Liz was saying earlier about the critical importance of starting with what's really going to drive value for the business, what are the capabilities and skills that we need to be able to get there, and then working across the organization with learning and development, partnering with the business to say, okay, how are we actually going to close these gaps? And where do we need to hire? Where do we need to build skills? How do we need to reorient a lot of what we're doing with training to the most important skills gaps? I think that's the hard work that a lot of organizations, at least in my experience, can struggle with.
1: One of the challenges with uh, reskilling. It's not always clear what skills you will need, especially as disruption sort of comes more rapidly and we will get to the pandemic and the impact of that. I would be curious to know what types of skills they look like.
0: I'll give an answer and then Liz, you should comment on this as well. I think we've done a lot of work within McKinsey to look at the skills of the future and to say, what are the types of skills that given all the disruption going on across industries and given all the technological change, what are the types of skills that are gonna be more in demand and less in demand in the future? And while it does vary a lot by sector, there are some common trends. And the one that's probably the least surprising to people is that technology skills are going to be in much higher demand. I think that Mm -hmm. that's probably not, a shock to anyone. The second largest increase, though, is in what you might call human skills. So emotional intelligence, ability to collaborate, ability to communicate. Think about all the things that machines can't do well. These types of skills or this category of skills is also going to be in high demand over the years to come. And a lot of the skills that are going to be in less demand, as you again might imagine, are in things that machines can do well. So routine manual tasks, routine cognitive tasks. What are the actual skills that people are thinking are going to be in the jobs of the future? But there's another underlying piece to this that I think is very important, which is hiring for and training for adaptability Mm -hmm. and looking for people who demonstrate an ability to learn new things, who demonstrate learning agility, who demonstrate openness and ability to flex in different directions, because we're all asked to do things that were not necessarily in our job description when we were hired. And I think you can look for those types of skills in people in addition to, you know, maybe the hard skills or the specific skills you're looking for, for from a business need, but you can also train those skills.
1: So Liz, is that part of what you get into, hiring and such? Absolutely.
2: I mean, I think just building off of what Matt said, if you don't want to start anywhere else, if you don't want to take anything else away from this podcast, you can take that the no regret action is to build this sense of adaptability in your organization, and in each of the individuals, a real appreciation for the fact that adaptability is malleable. We all have different starting points in terms of where we are from our research, we believe that we can help everyone to become more adaptable and that it's both individual attributes and the team environment that helps you get there. But if you have the choice, as Matt was saying, you know certainly you want to look for hiring people who have that growth mindset and a willingness to embrace new perspectives, new skills. The other element, though, is not just the mindset, it's the behaviors, right? How do you help create opportunities for individuals to practice at the edge of being too difficult, you know, stretch them out of their comfort zone and create environments where they
1: feel comfortable doing so. So Liz, what are the skills that company leaders should take away from this in terms of where they should be looking?
2: The only other skill that I wanted to share was this idea of how do you build resiliency? And your employees as well. Through COVID, we've seen even more how important it is to build resiliency. And I reflect a lot. I was fortunate to have been in the military in the sense of I think I had a lot of experiences there that made me more resilient.
1: You and were in and- Iraq twice. Is that correct?
2: I was in Iraq twice, but I think even more about the 12 mile road marches that I had to do, you know, in my first summer at West Point and how that built resiliency as well. So you don't have to deploy to a war zone. You don't have to walk 12 miles with a heavy pack on either. But what is the equivalent of those things in your organization that you're going to use to help people become more resilient? It's more important than ever before, not just for our professional lives,
1: but for our personal lives as well. Matt, what are you seeing just with the pandemic? Uh, Are we becoming more resilient?
0: I think the need for resilience has never been higher. I think people are getting stress tested in ways that they've never had to deal with before. And so when I talk with my peers at other organizations, this is probably the number one need that comes up because we are all being stretched. I think that there are people who are Uh, learning and growing in different ways through this period and building that resilience muscle. But I also think we need to do more to support people because it is just a very, very challenging time for all of us. We all know that. And so building these skills of resilience is something that I think more and more companies can invest in.
1: And mental health, um, you know, like that those areas, for example, sort of helping people cope with the other aspects. I, I, I do want to bring it back, and I think this has been a fascinating conversation that could, you know, frankly last for days on my front. But on a personal level, how have you incorporated these skills into your lives? I love strategies and tips from people who have been immersed in this. I'm going to start with you, Matt.
0: Sure, I'll give two quick tips that I try to do. One is there's a really great concept that was first created by a guy named Ron Heifetz in his research which is called being in the dance floor and on the balcony. And it means in any moment that you're in, can you be fully in it, but can you also build the muscle and the habit of also mentally stepping out and looking at what's happening and looking at how it's going and how things are working, what's working, what's not, and what you can learn from it. And I think if you just build that little mental muscle into your routines, what you'll find is you'll just squeeze so much more juice out of every experience because you'll be looking for those little micro-learning moments that you can find in almost everything that you do. So it doesn't have to be just more hours on the calendar. The second big tip that I would give people that I've tried to incorporate myself is set small and clear goals over a three to six month period for what you want to learn and what you want to develop on in that period. Not too many of them. Usually I would say three maximum and then tell other people what you're working on so that they can support you. And I so think three if
1: you- and three, three goals in three months
0: beautiful i love the branding 3 and 3 <laughs> do that tell other people about it maybe tell 3 friends and then it's 333 three, three. and and that will that will create this continuous learning loop that you'll have and you'll just keep learning new things every few months and building on it 3 goals 3 months maybe you tell 3 friends and then it's 333 three, three. you'll develop very quickly and you'll also be able to build on that for the next cycle decide what those goals are, and you'll continue learning and you'll build it as a habit, which is the most important thing.
1: Liz, let me go to you and tell me a little bit about what you've done in terms of incorporating these lessons.
2: I love Matt's uh, three and three branding and much of what I was going to say, I think is encapsulated in that. What is just being super intentional about what are you trying to learn right now? You know, I try to be a sponge in every interaction I'm in and and see and observe how others are doing things differently, how I'm trying to work on it. Right now, while we're all stuck to our computers at our desks, I even keep a post-it note on my computer with the one thing that I'm working on right then so that I can be even that much more intentional and focused on what the thing is that I'm trying to learn and get better at. The other one is really sharing what you're trying to work on with a few trusted friends or colleagues who can help give you feedback and hold you accountable and encourage you along the way. It all falls under the three and three, but those are just some of the ways that I personally do it.
1: It's great advice, especially as we're all working from home. And it is something that, of course, we will be continuing to talk about on personal, professional level for many months and years to come. Liz, Matt, thank you very much.
0: Thanks so much, Diane, for having us. Thank you.
1: That was Liz McNally and Matt Smith. You can read more of their research, their writing at McKinsey.com. I'm Diane Brady. Thanks very much for joining us.
0: You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on linkedin twitter and facebook